Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. I am excited for today's episode because we're going to get kinky. As I've said before on this show many times, everyone is a little bit kinky in some way, even if they don't consider themselves to be kinky. As some evidence of this, in the research I did for Tell Me What You Want, I surveyed thousands of American adults and found that more than 90% of people across genders, sexualities, and ages reported having fantasized about some aspect of BDSM before. So it's actually kind of unusual for someone to say they've never had a kinky fantasy. But of course, there's a difference between fantasy and reality. So whereas most people have been aroused by the thought of something kinky, most people have never acted on those fantasies. And I think a big part of the reason for this is because kink, BDSM, and fetishes have long been stigmatized. And that's where having a better understanding of kink can really be important. So that's the goal of today's episode. It's a compilation of some of the key things discussed on this show that everyone should know about the world of kink. So we'll start with what the term kink even means. Then we'll talk about where kinky interests come from and whether they're always about sex. We'll get some insights from a professional dominatrix. And we'll round it out with a discussion of consent and how to navigate common issues that come up in kinky relationships. This is going to be a really fascinating episode, and you're going to get all tied up in this conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. The Modern Sex Therapy Institutes provides continuing education, certifications, and a PhD in sexology to mental health and medical professionals across the globe. MSTI is a one-stop shop for ASECT sex therapy certification requirements, including education, sexual attitude reassessment, and supervision. MSTI offers flexible payment plans and learning options. Attend from anywhere in the world and learn from experts on sex and relationships. For more information on their programs and offerings, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Take self-pleasure to the next level with The Handy. Designed by Norwegian company SweetTech, the Handy is a motorized stroker that is compatible with a wide range of sleeves that mimic the sensations of different sexual activities. Try it with solo play or allow a partner to control it remotely via Wi-Fi from anywhere in the world. The Handy allows you to stay intimately connected with the partner even when you can't physically be together. The Handy offers up to 10 strokes per second at top speed, it can be synced with video, and the device is customizable to your body and needs. To get your hands on the Handy, Find the link in the show notes or visit thehandy.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code SEXANDPSYCH to get 10% off your purchase. Again, that's thehandy.com. To start today's kinky journey, we're going to revisit episode 44, where I spoke with sexuality researcher Dr. Richard Sprott, author of the book Sexual Outsiders. I think this is the perfect place to begin. Let's listen in as Richard describes for us the difference between kink, BDSM, and fetishes. In my mind, kink is the largest umbrella. It covers BDSM, but more than that. It covers fetish, but more than that. So I prefer to use the word kink to really capture this wide range of sexualities that are focused on Intensity of sensations, um, which can include pain, fascinations with sensory aspects, uh, smells, touch, feel. So that would be the often the fetish aspect. I 
think of kink, and I use the word kink primarily because that's the term that was used by the community to name itself, to talk about itself, starting back in the 1930s. So it's a community term. BDSM, or bondage and discipline, BD, DS is dominance and submission, and SM is sadism and masochism. BDSM is primarily focused on like power exchange and intense sensation. And the term, I think, originally came from academics. It really came from doctors and researchers and sociologists and psychologists who were trying to describe something that they, you know, did not want to use a a messy term like kink. Kink is messy, right? It's just all over the place as to what it means and what people mean by it when they use it. So they wanted something a bit more specific. And uh, the term has been adopted by the leather kink BDSM community. But in some ways, it's a newer term. And it's a term that comes really more from people outside the community than it does people who are building the community and living in the community. And then fetish is uh, clearly even more so than BDSM. Fetish is much more connected to, uh, as well as sadism, masochism, uh, are terms that really come from psychiatry, from early roots and sexology that was all focused on, wow, these people are sick. We need a medical term for these aberrations and human sexuality. And they came up with those. And those have been adopted by people in the community, people doing it. Often they change the meaning of it from what psychiatrists and doctors and, and sexologists were first describing. Each word has its own kind of history and its own shade of meaning. And often I will kind of float back and forth between them all. But sometimes it really, when I want to make a particular point, I will very consciously choose one term and, and tell people, this is why I'm using this term in this context. So, yeah. Kink, I tend to use that as the most because often I'm trying to talk about this huge range of human sexuality. Next up, we're going to revisit episode 56, where I spoke with neuroscience researcher Dr. Jim Faust. We talked about where fetishes come from, and while the story can certainly be different for different people, they often represent learned associations. Let's listen in as Jim and I talk about how psychological conditioning principles can help to explain the origin of many fetishes in both humans and animals alike. Let's start with your research on rats, where you essentially condition them in a way to have a clothing fetish of sorts. So Mm -hmm. please tell us a little bit about that study with male rats who were wearing these adorable little tiny jackets. (laughs) What did you do and what did you find? So this was actually quite accidental. I mean, I'd been interested in trying to understand you know, where fetishes come from. I'd done a lot of work on conditioning of odors, right? And you, you might even say that that would figure into the realm of fetishes since a neutral odor paired with sexual reward then becomes a preferred thing. I mean, rats will 
you know, pick up gauze with that odor, like say it's almond or lemon, they'll pick it up and rub it all over themselves and do all sorts of things that they wouldn't do if it wasn't paired with a sexual reward outcome. And of course, for male rats, that's going to be ejaculation, their version of an orgasm. For female rats, it's going to be their version of an orgasm, which I can provide by uh, with a little number four camel haired paintbrush, which I massage their clitoris with under the proper, you know, sort of delayed control that the female feels she has with regard to it. They actually show vocalizations that are indicative of having a rat version of an orgasm, just like the males do. So if we do that, we can pair the odor and females will actually prefer males that wear that odor. Males will prefer females that wear that odor, which of course is not what rats should do. They're allegedly promiscuous and yet a very simple Pavlovian conditioning procedure can make them choose a familiar partner bearing that familiar cue, which I think gets at some, you know, if we, if we try to decompose what a fetish actually is, as you mentioned, and as Spot mentioned, it's something that increases arousal. So anything you associate with the arousal that's activating your attention toward the reward that that arousal is actually moving you toward, that's going to come to activate your mesolimbic dopamine and activate all the things you need to do. In terms of the, the somatosensory fetish, right, this is quite accidental. I had rats that were used as studs for female choice paradigm. The problem with males is they're very cooperative. Male rats are wonderfully cooperative. They actually respect females when the females say no. So calling a human a rat is, you know, who isn't respecting that is kind of a misnomer to the rat. So these males had always worn these like rodent tethering jackets, right? Because if they don't, they'll actually crawl all over each other. So if one has the odor and the other one doesn't, soon they both have the odor. It's kind of like being in an obnoxious uh elevator where somebody is wearing way too much cologne and you kind of spend the rest of your day going, oh, damn, I touched that. <laughs> so it's a very similar kind of thing. So we had to tether the animals to keep them kind of in at opposite ends of this open field so that the female could actually make a free choice. So one of my other students needed some male studs. I said, oh, use those males. They're really good. And she did and they wouldn't copulate. I had no idea why. I thought, oh, well, maybe the females, maybe our estradiol is gone. We need to like remake up the estradiol and progesterone, which we did. Still didn't work. So then I thought, oh, well, you know, they've never been in these new chambers before. Maybe just pre-expose them to the chambers so they're not fearful. Did that, didn't work. So then I was right. this is a literal story. I was riding home on my bike at a major intersection in Montreal and the epiphany happened, you know, it kind of always happens at a bloody intersection. I almost got hit by a car. I turned my bike around. It's like the jacket, the jacket, the bloody jacket. They had never not worn the jacket. Like their first experiences were in these open fields with these jackets on. Right. And the females, of course, do horrible things. They run around. The male's like at the end of his tether, grabbing at this jacket, at the female. And of course, the jacket is holding them back. They don't know that it's really attached to a spring tether. So, oh my God. So we put the jackets on them and they copulated beautifully. <laughs> okay. So then we had to do a real study. So we had the animals trained with the jackets on, some trains with the jackets off, you know, equal numbers. And then on a final test, they either had jacket on or jacket off, jacket on or jacket off in both groups. And it turns out the ones who never had the jacket were wearing the jacket, they're fine. If they weren't wearing the jacket, they're fine. The ones who had the jacket during training and had the jacket on 
were equally fine, but the ones who actually had been trained with the jacket and now had the jacket off were not only not fine, they didn't copulate at all. So then we thought, okay, this is really interesting. So the jacket is associated with these first experiences of sexual arousal and, of course, ejaculation, sexual reward. So we're thinking, okay, can we make the jacket mean no? So we paired the jacket in a second test with females that were not in heat. So the males, you know, they tried to mount them and the females beat them up. So they learn that having the jacket on means no and having the jacket off means yes, right? And in this case, we did it again, the final test with jacket on, jacket off. The ones who had the jacket on, even though they're now being given sexually receptive females on this final test, didn't copulate with them. In fact, they acted as if we'd given them like an SSRI. So they were had a big delay of mounting, a big delay of intermitting. None of them ejaculated, right? So it means that they're, you know, having the jacket on now meant no, and no means your arousal has to go down. You have to actively inhibit, right? Whereas in the other case, not having the jacket on was like, oh yeah, baby, and off <laughs> they went, right? Because now they had that association. So you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, humans are different from animals and conditioning really doesn't occur. But condition, they say that because when you get to a laboratory in a university, your, your sexual preferences have already been conditioned. It's these initial experiences that tend to be the big things, right? So I think that, I think that that's really a take, one take-home message about, about the conditioning that occurs with this. Yeah, there may be other temperamental variables that we can discuss, but, but it's these first experiences with high arousal and that high arousal leading to, you know, very big re sexual reward, right? At orgasm or even just up in the arousal itself that now is starting to crystallize what you find attractive. And you know that because when somebody doesn't have that particular fetish object or you're not with that fetish object, nah. The arousal is kind of nothing. Yeah, that is so fascinating. <laughs> I don't think I knew that whole backstory where it was this accidental thing that you found. And I'm so glad that you then went and did the follow-up to show that that is what actually happens. So you did this you did these studies with male rats, but you've also done studies with female rats showing that they can also in a way, develop fetishes for, I believe you did some of the studies with jackets with the female rats as well. So this works in a similar way across sexes in, in rodents? It, males are much more susceptible to it than females. We have some females who showed that and showed beautiful conditioning and others who didn't at all. So I think there's a lot more variability in females than there is in males. And I think that may have to do with, you know, I'll call it androgen sculpting especially at puberty, which really kind of sculpts out a lot of our, you know, a lot of our ability perhaps to be more fluid in our choices. Let's dive further into the psychology of kink. Next up, we're going to revisit episode 72, where I interviewed a former professional dominatrix, Stavrula Tosca, who is also a filmmaker who created a BDSM web series called Switch. I spoke with Stavrula about the people who would seek out her services as a dominatrix. Who were they? What were they looking for? And was it really about sex? Let's listen in. So let's talk about your clients for a minute. 
and the men who visit dominatrixes. So as you mentioned, it's a pretty diverse group of men in terms of their backgrounds and their motivations, and it doesn't necessarily line up with the stereotypes that people hold about who might visit a professional dominatrix. So as you've told me before, some of these people are rich Wall Street types. Others are mm-hmm. literally saving up their lunch money all month to come and see you. It's a you know special treat for them. Also, you know, some of these men have fantasies that they want to explore, but they've been shamed by their partners previously for even expressing it. And so they have this opportunity in a shame-free way to explore that side of themselves. You also have some people who are tapping into previous pain and trauma and working through that, others who are seeking balance in their lives. So it's this very diverse group of people. So tell us a little bit more about some of the various characters you've encountered in this line of work. Yeah, yeah. This is actually one of my favorite things to talk about because when I share with people about the work that I've done or they've seen switch and they reach out, this is one of the biggest stereotypes that just, you know, falls, is completely crumbled by the end of our conversation. I will tell you that, well, it's a world that's mostly men coming as clients, obviously, but there's also some women and couples as well who come into, you know, play and experiment with the dominatrix and, you know, learn something about role play and whatnot. But I was completely taken aback to see people from all walks of life. And that goes for the women who do this, right? They're women from all all walks of life. They look anything you can imagine, tall, short, you know, blonde, it does a skin color, anything goes. And the men, I was very surprised to see not only the typical CEO type who just wants to be controlled for a change, right? And told what to do instead of being the alpha male 24-7, but a lot of young guys in their early 20s, students who wanted to be dominated and wanted to have this experience. I had clients much older in their, you know, 70s, mid to late 70s, who were also looking for something that they couldn't get anywhere else. And then everything in between, every profession you can imagine, every race, ethnicity, every religious background that you can imagine. And this was like, Oh my God, Like everybody needs this. Because you know, Justin, at the end of the day, haven't we all suppressed as we've been growing up, right? Haven't we all suppressed so much when it comes to our sexuality? I mean, one of the saddest parts about this was when I had to deal with clients who were very upfront about the fact that I feel kind of bad being here, but because there's no sex involved, I don't feel like I'm cheating on my wife or my partner. But here's the thing. I did ask her a couple of times to try something different or to wear something or to even for the client to actually, oh, I want like, you know, puppy role play or whatever it is. Just stuff that's also silly, but so much fun. And they just, you just let loose and you enjoy sex more afterwards, but they would be shut down or even worse, they would be embarrassed. So it it was really interesting to just seeing that, you know, everybody needs this. Yeah, that's consistent with what I see in my research on BDSM fantasies is that, you know, people across the lifespan, different demographic backgrounds, you know, any walk of life, people can have this fantasy. So it is much more common than we tend to think. And it doesn't line up with a lot of the popular stereotypes that people have about it. Also, the other thing is that I had a lot of clients over the years who told me that once they started feeling more comfortable, they revealed to me that actually their therapist had suggested that they go see a dominatrix 
and try some sort of role play to resolve mama trauma or anything else that was, you know, torturing them in a way to just let it loose and in, a, in an environment that they feel safe with a person who's compassionate, open-minded and open-hearted also to allow them and say, tell me, tell you know, your book, tell me what you want and then figure out the why and how can we structure the session to be able to help you better and that we can both have fun and walk away better from it. Yeah. Now, in some of our previous discussions we've had about this, you've talked about how many men have visited you because they want to be punished because they've done something bad. And so it's a way mm -hmm. of sort of seeking balance in their life. So for example, you've told me about some men who committed infidelity, and then they came to you to be punished, rather yeah. than to confess it to their spouse and yeah. you know, accept the, the consequences that way. Yeah. And you've also told me about these powerful Wall Street guys who come in sometimes wanting to do jail fantasy role play where you would dress up as a cop, they would confess their crimes. And, you know, again, it was this way of seeking balance for them because they were doing things during the day where they're, you know, taking advantage of Main Street and knowing that what they're doing, the decisions they're making have these very powerful negative consequences on people around the country. And so to seek balance, to be able to sleep at night, they have to come mm -hmm. to you to be punished. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, it's crazy, right? Like I would have never, ever thought. Um, this reminded me, by the way, well, I'll get to that, but I've had plenty of clients over the years who were very clear, listen, I'm an asshole and I get away with it all the time. At work, at home, there's no consequences. That's what I do. And I want to know what it would feel like if I were to spend a night in jail, you know, for while I'm waiting for my lawyer to come through and I don't know what's going to happen. And we're talking about these clients would also book me for like eight hour sessions, 12 hour sessions, quite often literally an overnight session so that it makes the fantasy more real, telling their partner, their spouse that they're going on a trip or they have to stay in their apartment in the city and actually spending the whole night in a BDSM establishment inside a jail cell, right? And being interrogated and not being allowed to sleep all night. And that's what I'm talking about, the exhaustion, you know, part when it comes to this. But I feel like we're all raised with a sense of what's right and what's wrong, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. More or less, everyone knows what's illegal or illegal, you know, these days. So these guys would have would have no qualms about admitting, listen, I fuck up a lot of people. We take money, we do this, we do that, we get away with all of it because we have lobbies and we have this and we have that, but I just, I can't sleep at night. I need to receive some sort of punishment. I need to know there's some sort of consequences, even if it's just in my head. So it's kind of like it makes you pause. And the first time that I heard this um, scenario, I was like, wow, you've really thought this like type of role play through. He was like, no, no, I'm being like a hundred percent fucking honest with you. Like, this is my life. I would also get, and I don't know if I shared that with you in, in that interview a few years back, I would also get quite a few police officers who were doing things that weren't supposed to be doing. And they were looking for some sort of punishment. Again, you know, th this would remind me of, uh, we've seen the images of a Catholic priest at the end of the night asking for forgiveness, right? At the end of the day, that self-flagellation. 
this was pretty much, no one else is going to punish me. I'm getting away with X, Y, Z, but I need to have, find some punishment for myself in order to be able, I guess, to balance things. And um, there's so many people who are into that. There's so many people who do that just to get through the day. And then I had other clients who were like, like I said, what I said before, I fuck with people all the time. I give my assistant a hard time just because she puts up with it and she needs the money. And I know I'm a dick, but this is what I do. So I want you to tie me up. Don't even ask me. Give me a safe word and you just do whatever you want to me. So when I would hear that their assistants are female, they're like other women that they're going through God knows what, just because they need to survive and they need the job. I was Those were actually some of my favorite clients because they would give me the green light to do whatever I wanted with them. And because I kept thinking that this is payback for what they're doing to that other female mm-hmm. in their life. So as a woman myself, having dealt with people like that before, you know, A, I started thinking, so when I had that boss or that supervisor all these years ago, huh? So those clients would pay for, you know, my, my trauma <laughs> as well. But uh, again, pretty, pretty interesting stuff. That is all fascinating. Now, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which I think is a common misconception about BDSM, which is that it's always about sex. And you never had sex with any of your clients, and nudity wasn't really even part of it either. So in the world of professional domination, it's really more about psychology than it is about sex, isn't it? If I were going to use, because someone asked me that a couple of days ago, if I were going to use one word to describe a dominatrix, I would just say a therapist. It's a form of therapy. There's Justin, there's something very special that happens in those rooms during a session. And that's why the bond between a dominatrix and her submissive, her client, let's call them a client, is just so important. And there are people that once they find their dominatrix, they're going to stick with her for years to come, right? It's fascinating how the human mind works, how we limit ourselves, and then we find ourselves behind closed doors where the dominatrix is fully dressed because you're the one in charge, you're the one in control, right? And the outfit sometimes can be a little revealing depending on the session, but I can tell you that nine out of 10 times I was with, you know, turtlenecks or a catsuit that's all the way, zips up all the way to the top. And again, they like that because you're in control. It's a reminder. I got my clothes on. I have nothing to worry about. The clients, a lot of the men would get completely naked at the beginning of the session because especially for men, but for all of us humans, you know, just taking your clothes off, especially for the first time in front of a stranger, you feel completely vulnerable, right? Like, Everything just comes out for you. And that stranger is sitting across from you on a throne. You're paying them a lot of money. They're just looking at you up and down and start asking you, you know, start asking the client a bunch of questions. And for men, this is pretty much the fastest way to access their vulnerability. I came to find out in that world. So after that, and I tell you, the things that came up for people during this session there's been quite a few times where um, as soon as the session wrapped up and the client exited, I just went to the bathroom crying. But again, you feel so connected with that person and what they're sharing with you is so incredibly intimate. And it's something that for most of these guys has been buried for so many years. And when they just literally kiss your hand and your feet on their way out, 
and keep telling you that I don't know how to thank you, Mistress Cassandra. You just you just took away 17 years of this weight that I've been carrying with me. Like I'm gonna sleep tonight. I don't need to take pills. It's incredibly rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. What's empowering about all of this is just you come to understand that we're all just humans having this physical experience on this planet. And it doesn't matter, you know, how accomplished you may be, how, uh, how many followers you have online or how big your house is or whatever. We tend to think of people who have accomplished a certain level of success as, wow, they got it all figured out and put them on a pedestal. And I came to see while I was in that world that, nope, it's not like that at all. All I can say is it sounds like a truly fascinating job. To round out today's kinky journey, we're going all the way back to episode eight, where I spoke with Shamira Howard, a licensed clinical social worker and author of the book, Use Your Mouth. I asked Shamira about some of the issues that come up when kinky people enter sex or relationship therapy. We discussed how to navigate consent and establish boundaries. Let's listen in. What are some of the issues that prompt people with kinky interests to come see you? So this is like one of my favorites. (laughs) So with people who are on the BDSM scene or who are a bit more kinky than the kinky that we know, they typically come to me to help them with different types of sexual agreements and contracts, help them to negotiate really tough scenes that they might be wanting to engage in. And most importantly, for helping them manage the dynamics or the relationship outside of their BDSM dynamic. And that can be that can be really tricky for them at times, especially depending on what type of structure they're in. Some people are in 24-7 dynamics and some people aren't. And so what I find is when people come in, for example, a couple who might be in a dom-sub type of dynamic, only when they're on the scene or only if they're at like a play party or something like that, they might do that four times a week, right? And so the roles kind of mesh when they get home. Sometimes they're like, okay, how do I get out of this role? And they like, I really want more softness or I want more intimacy or I don't want to engage in the stuff that we do when we're on the scene. I don't want you to be this dominant at home or I don't want you to be this submissive at home. Yeah, that's really interesting in terms of like the specific types of issues that come up. And if we kind of take them one by one. So you mentioned sort of the negotiation aspect and the consent piece. And, you know, for some people, it's really kind of like a contract that they have. So how do you help people who have some concerns around consent and that kind of negotiation at the beginning? What kind of advice do you give to them? So one thing I really, really appreciate about the BDSM community is their knowledge about consent. So that's actually where I learn a lot about consent through BDSM. So again, when I was at Widener, one of our SARS was that we had someone do a live BDSM demonstration. And this is when I first fell in love with this. I watched the flogging demonstration and was totally mesmerized by everyone in this Uh, workshop was totally mesmerized. I watched from the beginning to the end how the dom would really caress the sub, the person that he was flogging, and he would really, really be into her and just following her every cues. He knew when to stop, and he basically told us what was going on from start to finish. He knew how much pressure and all of this and paid so much attention. And so I find that in this 
specialty area, they are really huge on consent. And so some, but sometimes we know that there might be some boundary violations or depending on what type of scenes uh, they're negotiating, they might want to bring in someone else. And sometimes that's where the issues come in is how do we negotiate consent when we're bringing in someone else? So we start with asking questions. You basically want to know what this person's boundaries are. So a lot of times in this space, people use like the stop light for signals. So they engage with safe words. And so red, of course, means stop. Yellow means slow down, check in with me. And green, of course, means you can go. In conversations with negotiating consent, I ask people to write down their yes, no's, and maybes. So yes is green, of course, no is red and maybes are the yellow spaces. And so you would negotiate based on that. Before a scene happens, you want to know what a person, where where can I absolutely touch you at? Are there any spaces where you don't want to be touched? Have you been under the influence of any alcohol and drugs? Because we want to make sure that we do this in a safe way. And when we're talking about consent, people use several different models when negotiating consent. And so one of the ones I like to use is FRIES. It's an acronym and it basically tells us what consent is by using the acronym FRIES. The F stands for freely given. So basically someone who you're engaging with has to freely give you your their consent. They You can't coerce them or try to trick them into consenting with anything with you, right? So it's a choice you make without pressure, manipulation, or under the influence of any drugs. The R is reversible, right? It stands for reversible because you can always revoke or take your consent back at any time. Just because you begin engaging with someone, it doesn't mean that you're totally consenting. I means informed. You can only consent to something that you know what's going to happen. So for example, if somebody says they're going to use a condom and they don't, then there isn't full consent, right? And the E is for enthusiastic. So you only want to do things that you absolutely want to do when it comes to sex or any types of things you're doing. So make sure that you're consent is enthusiastic. Like, yes, I want you to flog me. And the S is for specific. So just because I say, yes, you can flog me on my back, it doesn't mean that I'm saying, yes, you can flog me in the face. So you have to make sure that you're very specific in what you're consenting to. I love that model and I can see how it could apply outside of the BDSM world as well and could be really useful. And for example, when talking about something like multi-partner sex, you know, just any activity where you're bringing extra people into the equation, having all of those boundaries clearly delineated and what is and is not acceptable, I think is is really important and really useful because I find that, for example, when it comes to multi-partner sex, this is something people really fantasize about a lot, but that it's actually one of the fantasies that's least likely to turn out well because (laughs) they're bringing somebody else in and they've not gone through all those steps that you just laid out so eloquently. So, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of applicability of this model to a lot of different types of sexual practices. Thank you for coming on this fun and fascinating journey through the world of kink, BDSM, and fetishes. There is, of course, so much more to say about these topics. So for additional information, check out the full episodes with my previous guests. You can find the links for all of them in the show notes. And visit my Sex and Psychology blog for tons of additional articles. 
To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.